Well, good morning and welcome. Like Jeff said, my name is Eric Lenz, and it is a pleasure to be here with you today. And, and continuing this series, uh, we're titling, What is the Father Like? And I'm, I'm really excited that we're asking this question because it has great implications for how we live. In fact, what we think of God is the most critical aspect of how we live our lives. What we think of God is the most critical aspect about how we live our lives because it shapes our moral framework, our decision-making, the words we say, the things we do, how we treat other people, and ultimately how we follow God and how we pursue him. And today I'm going to be talking about how God is self-sacrificing, God the Father is self-sacrificing in his nature. Uh, but first, you're probably realizing this summer, and we've kind of talked a little bit about this, but we're, we're kind of talking through the, each element of the Trinity here. With, we've just got done talking about who Jesus is, and then now who God the Father is, and eventually who the Holy Spirit is. And so we have this sort of perplexing thing sometimes that can be confusing. We have this great, big, infinite God who is one, but three distinct parts. And, and sometimes that can kind of throw some of us off. I had a, a Sunday school teacher when I was younger that helped make a whole lot of sense out of this, probably because she used an analogy that had to do with food, so it had my attention immediately as a middle school boy. Uh, she said, you know, the Trinity is like a cherry pie, where the, the filling isn't quite set yet, and it's kind of runny. And so you got this cherry pie in the pan, and so my mouth is salivating, right? And she said, it's like you cut this cherry pie into three pieces. I'm thinking, man, am I getting a third of a pie out of this object lesson? Yeah. No, I didn't. I was disappointed, actually. But so you cut this pie into three distinct pieces, and, but the filling all runs together. And, and that's what the Trinity is like. You have this pie that's three distinct pieces in the pan, but the filling is all connected together. And so that's kind of how we can start to think about what the Trinity is like. And as we look at the self-sacrificing nature of God, what's cool is we see it just in the essence of how the Trinity functions uh, initially here. And, and how God the Father sent his son Jesus so that we could know him. And we're given the Holy Spirit whose function is to point us always towards Jesus. Never the attention on itself, but always to point us towards Jesus. And Jesus always pointing our attention to God the Father, saying, this is what the Father is like. This is what the Father is like. And then God pouring out his Holy Spirit so that we can know Jesus, so that we can know the Father. And then pouring out his Holy Spirit so that we can know Jesus and the Father. And so then this current develops in, in who the Trinity and God, the Godhead three in one is. And it's like jumping into a raging river. And just it's the funnest ride ever when we just get immersed in the love of God and how the Trinity functions and how he lets us interact with him and know him. And so we see just in his very essence in the Trinity, God, how he is self-sacrificing in his love. Now, as we're talking about the, this topic of, of self-sacrificing, there's, there's probably a number of things that come to mind. In fact, I was standing out there this morning, and I overheard uh, more than one conversation about people who were, they were talking about someone who's, who was self-sacrificing this week, and just like, man, I can't believe how this person is doing this, and it just makes things, it, it just made my, my day or my week, and it, it was just like, you could just see the joy overflowing, you know, and it probably has happened in your life uh, multiple times, and maybe even this week, someone who's denied their needs uh, to help us. Maybe it's a great friend who's always looking to help other people, or a neighbor always willing to lend a hand, or a family member, or just that person that seems to know what other people need before they even know, or even know how to ask. Or, or as parents, we think about the deep love that we have for our children, that there is no expanse of land or depth of ocean that we wouldn't cross for our children. 
But then when they ask for a bite of our ice cream, we realize there is a limit to our love. So there is that. <laughs> but you see, I think what is so impactful about this, when we encounter self-sacrificing actions that resonates in our soul, is because it is at the core of the foundation of our relationship with God the Father himself. And it is in the very essence of who he is. And so when we experience this, we experience a little bit of who he is. And it's like it just reverberates through our soul and it brings joy in our lives. And you see, the Bible could be summed up in this title, uh, God's self-sacrificing love for humanity. The Bible could be summed up in this this one title, God's self-sacrificing love for humanity. Because it is littered all throughout. And actually, even before it all began, we see God's self-sacrificing love. In Revelation 13, uh, verse 8, it talks about uh, how God foreknew the outcome. Before he even pressed start on bringing all of us into being, being outside of time, this infinite being that God is, he knew the outcome of humanity. And he knew that it would cost him everything to save us, to bring us back to him. And in this verse in Revelation, it says, you know, the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth were laid. So the lamb being Jesus, knowing that he was going to have to give his life before the foundations of the earth were even laid. And yet God still in his infinite expression of his love for us brought all of us into being. And then we see this continue through the Old Testament. We see this God who is in his very nature loving of us. Uh, and, and giving of us and, and willing to enter the mess. We see that at, he could have very easily and justifiably left us to our own vices and, and, and as we turned our back on him. But then as you know, like his people cried out to him, we see this very real and personal God in, in Exodus uh, chapter... Whoop, that's not the right verse in my Bible. I'll just read it off my outline. Uh, <laughs> Exodus 3, verses 7 through 8, where he says... He speaks to Moses through the burning bush, and he says, uh, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out, so I have come down to rescue them. And so this big, infinite, all-powerful God chose to be near, to intervene, and he's willing to enter the mess and the pain on our behalf. This isn't a God that says, you better have it all together if you want me to be near you. That is not what this is about. And then we see the same character of God, the same quality of him throughout all uh, the rest of this story. We see an expanse over 500 years with the prophets and God continuing to speak to and through them to his people. Saying things like he did to Isaiah in Isaiah 58, 9. He said, then you will call and the Lord will answer you. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. He is willing to enter this mess and pain and bring freedom. And then at the culminating point of self-sacrificing love, we see that God is personal and close and real as he sets aside his infinite power and becomes a defenseless baby. And the lowest social status, prestige, or financial affluence, he gives everything to come and be with us, to be in the flesh with us. Why? So that we could know him so that we could truly live, so that we could have freedom from the, the sin or the soul of shame that has defined our lives, and then from there has mapped out all of eternity for us. 
And that is just the tip of the iceberg. And that is what is so exciting and amazing about exploring who God is in the Bible. We see his mark all throughout the Old Testament and the prophets in the New Testament. And we see this amazing self-sacrificing love that he has for us. The problem is, sometimes we listen with selective hearing. Sometimes we make wrong assumptions about who God is. We only hear the things that we want to hear or read the things that we want to read or we kind of fill in blanks that maybe aren't there. Or we get ideas of who God is from maybe places other than the Bible. Maybe it's our just experiences with maybe other people in the church or maybe just when we think of father. For some of you, it might be your experience with your earthly father. Uh, makes you think, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with a father figure like if that's who God is. And so it can kind of distort our perception of who he is. Or maybe even we know full well that Jesus was the Messiah, that we are called to live by his grace and his love, that he has forgiven us of our sins and he has brought salvation to us, and yet we still live as though we have to earn our keep in the kingdom of God, that we have to try and be enough, and that this, this self-condemnation or shame can define our lives. And it's like there's this separation between our head and our heart. We know it in our head, but then our hearts just run away from us in this so often. And I could give examples of in the church today where we see this. I could give examples of in the early church, the very first church where we see this. But perhaps the most uh, intriguing place this happens is with those who were closest to Jesus, physically closest to him, his 12 disciples who miss the point entirely so often. And it, it, it's almost laughable, but it's not, but it kind of is. When you think about like the, the situation that happened. And so looking at Mark 10 here, what we have is we're picking up in the story where um, Jesus told his disciples, he predicted his death three times. He said, I'm going to be captured and crucified and put to death, but I will raise again from the dead. And he said this three times. And after each time, they kind of began to squabble and just like, had, I, I thought, just kind of strange responses to this. And so he tells them this for the third time that he's going to be captured and killed and, and, and raised from the dead. And so James and John then, here in verse 35, they say, uh, their response to that is, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Seems odd to me. And then Jesus responds, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And in verse 38, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And he goes on to kind of unpack a little bit of like, you're misunderstanding what the kingdom of God is about. And so we have this group of, of these 12 disciples who came from nothing and grew up and poor and with not a lot of influence or power or prestige or anything. And they're thinking, man, this Jesus guy is really gaining a lot of popularity. And if he establishes a kingdom, I mean, we're going we're gonna to be somebody now. And I want to sit at the right and the left. And so they're kind of jockeying for position. And then we see later on, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Why? Because they didn't think to ask first. They're all kind of like trying to get the end. Who's going to be at the left and the right, the top two positions here? But we see this false narrative develop in, in the disciples who were closest to Jesus that missed it. And we see it all throughout. And quite frankly, I see it in the mirror every single day. It's just this human condition all throughout. This false narrative that you must do something to earn your way to God or to be great in his kingdom. You must do something to earn your way to God or to be great in his kingdom. 
And it's not exclusive to Christians if you're a naturalist or atheist or hedonist or Buddhist or whatever. This is the same human condition that, that underlies us all, but it's the differentiating part of Christianity where we understand that this is not what he calls us to do because it, it entraps us and it threatens our livelihood. And it, but it's appealing to so many because it allows us to live under the illusion that we are in control and we can try and remain in control. But it's this false narrative that drives us away from God. In Galatians 5.4, Paul's talking to the church of Galatia here. He's writing this letter to them addressing this exact issue. And he says, you who are trying to be justified by the law, meaning trying to justify who you are and, and, and your value by what you do, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ, separated from him. You have fallen away from grace. So in, in, in essence, pushing themselves away from Christ because they're missing the point completely. And we all do it. And the side effect of this is, is this soul of shame that begins to define us. And it's this undercurrent that sneaks in our lives. I'm not good enough. I better try harder. I dropped the ball here. I better try harder. Man, I just I want to be a better dad or a better mom or a better parent or a better teacher or a better coworker. Or I did great here, but man, I need to. And we focus on the negative. We focus on the negative. We focus on the negative. I better try harder. And then what happens is then pride sneaks in. Look at this thing I did. Look at this. Everyone, look at how great I did at this. And then that sneaks in. And then that, what does that do? That pushes us away from God and it pushes us away from other people. And so we try harder and we try harder and it's like we're in this big pool of quicksand and the harder we kick and the harder we try to be good enough, the deeper we sink until we just can't breathe anymore. And it breeds all kinds of ugly things like pride and shame and, and, and then eventually maybe even apathy when we just feel like we can't go on any longer trying to be good enough. And this mindset of I am good enough will always end in shame and alienation from God. He is always there waiting for us. But when we try to be good enough, it's us pushing away from him. And the whole time, God is probably asking, who are you following? And I would say, oftentimes, the answer would be ourselves. Like a dog chasing our tail until we are so disoriented and sick, we just can't even take it. And it is the shame that is Satan's greatest tool to debilitate us and keep us from experiencing true life in Christ. Because it's like us saying, you know, God, even though you did this for me, I'm going to show you how good I can be apart from you. God, even though you did this for me, I'm going to keep tally of all my good deeds and all of the bad ones. And I'm going to dwell on the things I'm doing, the things that I'm doing right and I'm doing wrong. So, and, and focus on my image and what happens is this focus becomes inward, and we entirely miss the point of the self-sacrificing love of God. And it's easy, it is such an easy thing to do. Even when we know full well the grace of God, and then our hearts run in that direction, to be enough, to do enough. Pride and shame and self-condemnation are telltale signs that we are following something other than God. So how do, we, how do we counteract this false narrative? Well, what Jesus did here, 
is he very directly talked to his disciples then in this, uh, this passage in Mark. And we pick up in uh, Mark 10, 43 here. And he said very directly, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's saying that the kingdom of God is completely different than your thinking. And if you want to be great, then you must become the least in how you serve everyone around you. And you see, I think even after this little sit-down chat with Jesus and the 12 disciples here, I think they still missed the point. And it wasn't until that Jesus resurrected from the dead and visited with them in person that it all came together, that they started to put the pieces together. And that was what fueled the beginning of the early church when they saw, like, this is what the kingdom of God is about. This is what the self-sacrificing love of God is about, that we are to live by his grace and not by what we do and what we don't do. And what is cool about about it is that they began to realize really it's not even about what you do, but it's about what God has done for you. Let me repeat that. It is not about what you do. It is about what God has done for you. We, we have turned our backs on him. We've messed up. We've hurt others. We've hurt him. And he could have easily and justifiably just walked away. But God chose to enter the mess of this broken world and take on the pain and the suffering and the heartache of this world in order to set us free from the soul of shame and sin that has defined us to do what we couldn't do on our own. Making a profound statement that greatness is found in a lifestyle of sacrificial love. And for some of you, that might just sound like greatness is found in a lifestyle of sacrificial love. How, I, I don't understand how that can work. I remember one of the coolest summer jobs I've ever had was working at Canica Camp, Camps down in Branson, Missouri. It was, I still can't even believe they paid me to do that. It was so much fun. But I remember in the, in the staff training week before camp started, the very first day they talked about this I'm third way, where we put God first, others second, and I'm third. And what was impactful about it wasn't that they just said that. I had never seen this collective, uh, up to that point, I had never seen this collective service, self-sacrificing love in, in such a profound way that they exhibited it there. And it was just like they just poured into us and empowered us and just and equipped us. And after that week, it was just like, man, I just felt like on top of the world because of how they had loved us and how they had just laid down their lives like every single day to serve the people around them, to serve the counselors. And then when the kiddos came to camp, guess what I wanted to do? The exact same thing to them. And it transformed the culture of the camp and it defined what that camp was all about. And this is what has changed the world with the love of Jesus and his self-sacrificing love. That we don't have to live in a way that asserts ourselves over others and shows everyone we're good enough and prove that we are good enough apart from God. We don't have to live under that power of shame any longer. Because we have been defined by the actions of a self-sacrificing God. And we are valued. And so we can live in freedom to value others. So when we look at who God is in his very nature, we see that greatness is found in a lifestyle of sacrificial love. 
So as we've kind of like looked at the, the nature of God and God the Father and his self-sacrificing nature and, and these truths, now what can we do with them? Well, I want to give you just a few very practical, what I call soul training exercises, some, some ways that we can, we can apply this. So in Galatians uh, 5.1, and this is why I'm, I'm choosing these, these practical ways that we can practice this. Galatians 5.1 says this, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Which is a pretty cool statement, that it's for freedom's sake that you are set free. But then it says, stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. And that's the most critical part of the verse where he says, stand firm then. It's one thing to know this, but you need to stand firm. Don't, he's like, I've unlocked the cage, I've taken the chains off, don't go back in there and put the chains back on. And we do this so often, we're like, oh, yeah, I'm free. I'm going to go right back in the cage and put the chains on. <laughs> we all do it. I do it. We all do that. We run right back to it because we forget. We need to daily have this, the resurrection of Christ, his love for us, right in front of our face. So these are some ways that we can kind of recalibrate how we, how we think and how we live. So these soul training exercises. First, it's good. we have think, look, and do. So first of all, think. So how we can realign our head and heart. So how we can apply this is, is how we recalibrate each day and how we think. And the question for you is, what is it that dominates your mental space and your thoughts? You're the experts on it. You're with yourself all the time. When you wake up in the morning, what is it that fills your head? When you're uh, going through about your day, what is it that, that fills your head? And what we have to do is we have to find a way to recalibrate with what is true. And I'll be very honest about it. There is no substitute for engaging the Word of God in our lives. And it is our lifeline. And I know for me, when I wake up every morning, it's like, it seems like my heart just wants to run back to this. Like, I've got to be good enough. I've got to be good enough. I've got to be good enough. And I have to just, like, set my... Set, like recalibrate the system here. And probably for the last three years, every single day, I can find it easily because it's probably the most open page in my Bible. How I recalibrate is just this first, check, the first section of Psalm 63. Where it says, You, God, are my God, and earnestly I seek you. And it, go, it goes on in this section, but I then, like, I just read it over, and then I begin to pray. You, God, are my God, not anyone else, not anything else, not any opinion or thought. And earnestly I seek you, not anything of this world, but God, I seek you first and foremost. And some days when it just seems like I can't get it through my thick head, I just need to sit and I write it. And this is how I engage the word, is sometimes I'll sit and read a passage, and then I just feel like 10 minutes later, I'm like, I don't even remember what I read. But a way that I can engage it is I just, if I come across something that it's like, man, that's impactful, or that's a cool verse, I just write it down. If I have a question, just write it down. There are zero rules to writing in a notebook, believe it or not. You don't have to, uh, there, there's no, you don't have to write a certain amount every day. If you don't write in it one day, the notebook police are not going to come for you. You can do whatever you want with those blank pages. But just finding a way to, to engage the word with that, I think it, it's so impactful. And, and probably a third of this is that verse that I just have written multiple times. I'll write it once, and then I'll write it again, and then I'll write it again. 
before I go on to my other reading. Because I, I know that's what I need to set my focus on and what we need to recalibrate. We need to redirect with what is true. And there is no supplement for engaging the word in our lives and doing this at the start of the day. And it sets us in the right direction. And it counteracts those thoughts. Even though we know it to be true, I know those verses are true, but there's something powerful about when we engage the word in that way each day. So first is think, how we recalibrate daily. Second is look, how we look. Look and pray for ways to give in self-sacrificing ways. Pray that God would open your eyes to how he's at work around you. I guarantee you, if you ask God, like, God, just help me to see what you are doing around me. I'm pretty sure that he's probably going to open your eyes to what's going on around you. You know, it's, it's kind of like, I, I mean, God is always at work. He is always moving. And it's just a matter of us just opening our eyes to see what is going on. It's kind of like this. I always tease my wife that she hides stuff from me because I'm really bad at finding things. And so what happens is like I end up like rummaging around in the closet for a few minutes. I'm like, oh, I can't find this. Where is it at? And I'm like, hey, Becky, where's the... Oh, never mind. Found it. This always happens. It was like right in front of my face the whole time. And I think this is how it is with like how God works around us. Sometimes it's like, man, I just can't see where he's at. And then it's just a matter of he's like right there in front of us in the little things and the simple things and in the big things. But I think part of how we can open our eyes is changing the internal dialogue that we have about others. Because if we have devaluing thoughts and words that we engage in, we are probably going to miss the opportunities to show value to other people with our actions and our words. So opening our eyes and looking, trying to see the world like God sees the world. Asking him to let us see through his eyes and feel with his heart. So realigning our head and heart with how we think and how we look. And then finally, how we do. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. And it was a friend that told me this and it just made sense to me. Is see the need, meet the need. When we engage in self-sacrificing service to those around us, we get to experience the very essence of who God is. And it brings us this joy in life. It like resonates and reverberates in our souls. And we have just such an amazing tendency to overcomplicate things. Like, it's amazing. And I know I do. I mean, that's how I know this firsthand is because I do this. But when we keep it simple and just look at the little things that we can, we can give to the people around us, I think I'm convinced that our families are the most important ministry that we have. And whatever family looks like for you in whatever stage or position that you're in right now, our families are the most important ministry that we have. And I think cleaning toilets and changing poopy diapers are among the most holy work that we can partake in. There's something about cleaning a dirty toilet that just sets your perspective in the right direction. And we do this because we've been shown amazing love that has changed our lives. And let's, let's be honest, sometimes we feel stuck. They just feel like, man, is, is God even there? Like, I've tried praying, I've tried reading the word, I just, I'm just stuck. This is a great way to get unstuck. Just find ways to serve the people around you. Because as we're doing this, we're engaging in the very nature of who God is. 
And we begin to just feel his subtle movements, feel his touch in these things, and hear his whispers to go in this direction. We begin to then just open our eyes and ears to where he's at and what he's doing. The first century church flourished and grew in spite of intense persecution and oppression from the Roman Empire. Not by power, not by military force, not by might and authority, or by having everyone answer to them. No, they did it through selfless love and compassion and sacrifice. The people looking in on them said, I have never seen love like that before. And all the while, that group of Christians was intently, daily looking upon the cross and what Jesus had done for them, saying, I have never seen love like that before. That's what fueled them and drove them. What if that is what defined us as a body of believers? As representatives of God the Father, whose self-sacrificing love has changed the course of humanity forever. And as we understand this, we begin to think and see how what we think of God is the most critical aspect of how we live. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your relentless love that you don't give up on us. God, that you gave everything that we could be with you. God, that you were willing to enter the mess and the pain in this world. God, so that we could truly live in you. And God, I pray that this morning, and as we encounter your word, and as we encounter the, the words in this worship, God, that you would just realign our heads and our hearts together, that we would see you as you truly are. And it would change how we live. And God, that it would just resonate deep in our souls and our hearts in who you are, that we could re- live in a way that reflects that. God, open our eyes. I pray that this week as we engage you in the word and in prayer, Lord, that you would meet us in that time. Holy Spirit, just guide us and teach us in that. And Lord, we, just, we are grateful for who you are and how you have loved us. I just pray this in Jesus' name.